And let's be clear, we exist only as a Great Commission people. We exist in order that sinners will hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe and be saved from all the nations. The marching orders of the Church of Jesus Christ were to go into all the world and preach the gospel because the gospel has the power unto salvation. This is what it means to follow Christ. A call to live, a call to die, a call to spend your life for Jesus here and around the world until he returns. Welcome to Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. This season of the podcast, we're focusing on missions in challenging and unique locations. We're talking with people who are working in jungles, mountains, on islands, in different rural contexts around the world. Today, we're going to be talking about missions in places that experience extreme poverty. Our guest today is Clark Atwood. Clark and his wife, Elizabeth, have been married for 20 years and have four kids, two boys, two girls. And they ranged from teenager all the way down to toddler. They both grew up and went to college in Georgia and had previous careers before going to serve overseas. And now they have lived in South Asia for over 10 years, serving with a mission sending organization. Their context is majority Muslim, but there's also a large percentage of Hindus and many people who follow tribal religions as well. For the past seven years, Clark and his family have been focused on reaching urban peoples, utilizing strategies to see locally led gospel advance. And they live in an area that has a very high rate of poverty, oppression, and class hierarchy with very few, if any, known evangelical believers. I'm really looking forward to this conversation today. Clark, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Dr. Aiken. It's awesome to be with you guys. Excited to talk through some of these things and just honored to be on it with you today. Yeah, why don't we start with the question, you know, where are you? Give us maybe an overview of your context, the people, the environment, the landscape, the culture. What are some of the shocking facts about where you are? Yeah, well, you know, if you think about South Asia, you know, conjure up a picture of just high population density, right? So South Asia, the eight countries that it makes up, 1.3, 1.5 billion people there. And where we live, our specific context is the size of the state of Georgia, but there's 170 million people. So about half the population of the U.S. living in an area the size of the state of Georgia. So it's very population dense, but the people are great. They're friendly, energetic, very familial. The family structure is very important there. They hold highly to tradition and hold tightly to that. They love their language and culture. South Asians love their language. They love the languages they speak, the culture. They're very hospitable. I would love to encourage you guys to think about a people that are very appreciative of any effort to learn their language and culture, any effort you might take to speak their language or embrace their culture. That's the pride they have in their language and culture coming out when you do that. It's very hot and humid. We usually say there's only two seasons, hot and mild. So for about 10 months out of the year, it's just really hot and humid. And then the mild season from maybe Thanksgiving to Valentine's Day, it's really nice, kind of like living in San Diego or somewhere, but it's hot and humid the other times, which goes well with where I've grown up in South Georgia. Geographically, it's very flat. We don't have a lot of mountains and hills, but there are lots of rivers and just endless rice fields. It's very beautiful when you get out of the city and get into the villages. It's very flat and just endless green, emerald green rice fields. Let's see the capital city, 20 million people, Dr. Aiken. It is an urban jungle as much as you can imagine. One of the larger cities in the world and in South Asia. What do we got? Noise. It's dirty. Everything moves at a frenetic pace. The traffic is 
not great, but it's just a crazy busy urban area. And then culturally, there's some interesting things. So the history for centuries, there was kind of this Hindu culture and sort of the basic South Asian feel. But then as the Muslim empires and rulers started moving in, and there was a large migration in the last century of Muslims to our area, sort of that South Asian and Hindu culture kind of got replaced with more of an Islamic veneer. So it's very interesting because of the history of where we live. The people are very nationalist. They're very prideful in their country and what's going on, but they're also largely Muslim. So there's this really interesting interplay between Muslim traditions and all the things going on there with the historical context and culture of South Asia. So it's a really interesting mix. I think one thing that's shocking that our listeners would appreciate, but maybe also be surprised to hear is that there's been a gospel presence in our area since the late 1700s, a long history of believers being in the area. In fact, there's Baptist denominations that have been around for over a hundred years in our context, but yet the percentage of evangelical believers is dwindling. It's getting smaller. It's not growing and reproducing and multiplying. So it's sort of shocking to think Christianity has been there that long. And there's some very old tradition of even Baptist work, but we're losing ground. Well, thanks, Clark, for that overview. I think it's very helpful. I think even just putting into context for our listeners, I'm here in Kentucky. I live in a state that has about four and a half million people in the entire state. You talked about a capital city with over 20 million people. So just a vast, urban, gritty, hot kind of location. I think you rightly described that for us. Is there anything you would say is maybe unique or surprising about your context that maybe people may not know or realize? Yeah, well, a couple of things. So cricket is very big there. Cricket's a sport similar to baseball. People talk about it like it's baseball. So many of the listeners on the podcast may have heard or seen cricket or know a little bit about it, but that's huge. Just about every street corner or alleyway, you can find kids playing cricket on the streets. That's kind of interesting. And some people may have seen cricket before, know a little bit about it, particularly if you're familiar with South Asia. The other interesting thing I think the listeners would love to hear is if you take a look at the tags on your clothes right now, a lot of your clothes may have been made in our context. In fact, the large portion, almost 80% of the GDP of our area is in fact garment exports. So many, many clothes, high capacity retailers all over the U.S. are selling clothes that have been made in our context. So that's kind of interesting to take a look in your closet and see what clothes might have been made in our area. That's cool. Now, I know you didn't grow up there, but I would love to hear the story briefly on how you got there. So it's been about, I guess, about 12 years now. My wife and I were here, as you mentioned in the bio, we were living sort of the American dream. I mean, literally had a house, two kids, good jobs and careers that we were enjoying. We were active and involved in leadership at our local church. Felt like as a believer, serving the local church, serving our community as much as we could with our gifts. That was what we were doing. But all that time, there was an uneasiness in our hearts. No amount of ministry or church, you know, sort of rolling up our sleeves and getting involved in the local church really could overcome that uneasiness. So we began to pray like, Lord, what's going on here? We should be happy. We should be joyful in this. But we just felt that uneasiness. So as we began to pray and sort of even seek counsel of others around us and certainly looking in the word, particularly places like Psalms and the New Testament, we began to see God's heart for the nations. And really, over those few years, we were processing through these thoughts. It was kind of an exercise and I guess allowing the fears and anxiety that Satan was sort of weaving into our thoughts and mind to be overcome and broken down by God's grace and love for the nations. We were encouraged by some families that were already serving overseas and the Lord began to turn our hearts. And all that time we'd been asking this question, sort of feeling like we should be overseas. But the thing that was holding us back is we kept asking, well, why should we go? And Dr. Aiken, we kept looking for a reason to go. And 
nothing ultimately would lead us out the door, so to speak. But as we dug into the word, and I think the Lord and the spirit just began to speak to our hearts. Here's the question we begin to ask. And as you look in the light of 1.3 billion lost people in South Asia, God's revelation 7-9 vision of nation, people, tribe, and language, the question that ultimately gripped our hearts, and this is how we got there, this is how we walked out in our lives, was why should we stay? In light of who God is and what Christ has done, why should we stay? And that's the question that ultimately led us to go overseas as God began to break down our fears and anxieties and allow us to just be obedient to his call in our lives. Uh, praise the Lord. I appreciate you sharing some of that background. We're going to get to some of the challenges in a moment, but I would love for you just to briefly kind of capture for us, what is it about this place that makes it so special to you? Great question. I'm going to try and not get emotional. It's the people. You know, it's a very difficult and tough place, but man, the people that the smiles come so easily. I mean, the tremendous hardship these people are under, but the smiles that come easily, the joy and the fun that these people have in the midst of such difficult circumstances, even the comfort in knowing that God loves these people so much more than we do. It makes it special to know, man, this is a place that God loves these people. He's created them. He died for them. So there's just something about the difficulty and the hardness, but knowing that God loves them, that sort of grows on you. And oftentimes, quite honestly, I'll have a hard day or be frustrated at the dirt and the noise and the pollution and just, oh, why is it taking me all day to you know pay a power bill? Or why is this person want to bribe for me when it should be so simple? I just kind of have to step back and just look at the face of the people, look into the eyes of one person, maybe a friend or even just a random passerby, someone on the street and remember that God died for these people too. I think that's what makes it special is just knowing that the gospel still gives us hope that he's working in the lives of those people. And he delights seeing them coming to the kingdom. I think that's what makes it special is sort of the prayer that Hudson Taylor prayed and we believe it and we ask it and we cry out for it. And that's just one more, Lord, give us mm -hmm. just one more. And that's mm -hmm. what makes it special. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks for being vulnerable and transparent with us on that one. You know, what makes this context a challenging place? to do ministry. Can you give us any examples about why this is kind of a hard place to do some ministry? Yeah, exactly. I think one of the difficulties, sort of an overarching cultural complexity to ministry here is sort of the view that people have of outsiders and foreigners like us, almost as if we're their savior and helper to be able to bring them out of this difficulty. You know, I don't meet too many people who are serving even in ministry for the cause of Christ, for the gospel, because they're called to it. So often, they're serving the Lord in ministry because so much foreign involvement, so much money and influence and power is being brought by foreigners to allow them to serve in a capacity to move up the ladder. Loyalty in ministry is purchased by higher salary or promise of a trip to America or even a visa to America or a big building or a big church building or successful ministry that makes the leader or their ministry famous. So I think the difficulty is knowing who is really in it for the right reasons? Who really wants to see these people standing around the throne one day and who just wants to build their own legacy? I'll tell you a quick story about a young man that I had the privilege of leading to faith. I play soccer and my kids play soccer. So we would go out in the village and play soccer. And we met this young man and through many weeks of just relationship building and sharing the gospel, he came to faith. And I remember the exact place right in front of one of the shops there in the village that we talked and we prayed together and he put his faith in Christ. And after a few days, we began talking and about discipleship. And one of the first things we begin asking people when they come to faith immediately is, who do you know in your family or friends 
or your spheres of influence that you can invite in to begin to hear about Christ and begin to study his word together. And he just didn't seem to really want to do that. He was kind of afraid to share the gospel with his family. He's certainly afraid of persecution, but he just never seemed to really get it. And finally, I just had to have a talk with him and say, hey, brother, when we come to faith, we not only are saved by Christ, but he's our Lord. And we're you know, wanting to serve him and do what he delights in. And that's spreading his glory over the earth. And he just said, look, you know, I have to be honest with you. I only said yes to Jesus because I wanted to get a job from you. And I wanted you to help my family financially. I pretty much said yes to you and not Jesus. So that's a difficulty in ministry, Dr. Aiken, of trying to know that many of the people there look at you more as a savior with finances and influence and power than just having Christ and bearing his cross. So But hey, this is the hope we see in the word, right? I mean, ultimately, we're trying to empower and equip locals to do ministry. And that ministry that they're doing in a Christ-like way will ultimately undo Satan's plan to enslave these people, even with that mentality of thinking that the foreigners have the answers. So we do see brothers and sisters in ministry that really want to see kingdom advance happen, that serve the Lord faithfully, take up the priesthood, and really don't want to fall prey to that colonial sort of parochial system that displaces local ownership and doesn't allow them to truly steward the gospel work. So there's a difficulty and a challenge, but man, we see a lot of God working in a lot of people's lives. The Great Commission is a call to go, and a call to go is a call to prepare. Whether you're called to advance the gospel in your local church or on mission fields around the world, Southern Seminary is committed to preparing you for a lifetime of faithful ministry. Designed with flexibility and personalization in mind, the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies allows pastors, missionaries, and ministry leaders to prepare for their own unique call to ministry. It's designed to equip students with the biblical foundation and the practical training needed to present the gospel clearly in cross-cultural missional settings. To learn more about the Master of Divinity in Great Commission Studies, go to sbts.edu slash bgs or go to the episode notes for this podcast and click the link to the Billy Graham School of Southern Seminary. There, you'll learn how listeners to this podcast can save $40 when applying for classes. That web address again is sbts.edu slash bgs. I want to dive more into, we talked about you being in a context of extreme poverty. I would love for you just to talk a little bit more about the mindset, the worldview of those who are living in those contexts of extreme poverty. How do they see the world? What are some of the challenges you have when you try to engage them with gospel truth? Yeah, great question. And I do want to say to our listeners, there's a different context that we serve in and poverty where we live looks a lot different than the U.S. And I want to say this gently, but I want to say that I'm not sure we truly understand poverty living in America. Where we live, poverty is all about systematic oppression and corruption. It is a mindset that the people have been sold or they have of hopelessness and fear. It enslaves people to not have the thought that they could ever rise above their difficult situation, whether it's finances or being literally physically enslaved by a system that they don't have rights, either their own human rights of dignity and being made in the image of God, or even rights to their own money or to even their families. Even in the media right now, you're seeing a lot of things about some of the trafficking, some of the terrible things that are going on. That's very present there. And that mindset of fear and enslaving is a mindset and a worldview of the people. Another difficulty of the mindset and worldview is in our culture, it's honorable to steal. If you can get ahead, the age old question, would you steal a loaf of bread to feed your family? Absolutely unequivocally, yes, in this culture, because in an honor and shame culture, we really see this idea of 
if you have the power to squash the little guy to get ahead, that's honorable because you're taking care of yourself and your family. So that mindset does play into how the poverty is continued there. I would say it this way. It's sort of a two-sided coin. The mindset of people in poverty in our location is very hopeless. There's no way to get out of it. They don't see that there's any hope to beat the system, so to speak. And so they have this idea that we'll never get out of this. And that leads to all kinds of practical things that they lose their motivation to do things. But there's also slaves to a system. And this is where the compassion of the gospel comes in. They are slaves to a system that is treating them as though they're objects that is just sinful in its core nature. And Dr. Aiken, I ultimately believe poverty where we live is a problem of lostness and the fact that we just live in a fallen world. And we know the cure to lostness is the gospel. Without question, there are many solutions and practically there are some things we could talk about. But I think the main thing is that Christ didn't just come, and we see this throughout his life, just to heal what ailed people physically. He came to fix the problem that no amount of money or wealth or social programs or NGOs could help and could fix, and that is our souls are eternal. And without Jesus, without Christ, we have no hope for eternity. And so I think we always come in with lostness being the number one problem for poverty, and the only solution is the gospel. Amen. I appreciate you sharing that. That's a great perspective. You know, kind of connected to perspective for you, ministering in this context, has that changed or influenced the way that you talk to your kids, the way that you talk to maybe your church back home in the States about poverty, wealth, possessions? Has that had any kind of impact on that? Yeah, sure. I mean, our kids definitely know what it is to have nothing, right? I mean, they've been in countless homes where they're cooking on a stove made of clay, you know, cooking rice over wood with a home that's made of mud, maybe some tin on the roof. They've seen abject poverty in its truest sense, and they know how to be thankful for little things. We do try and teach them to be thankful for the little things because ultimately we have the gospel that we are ultimately and 100% infinitely thankful for. But I would say this, and I want to take this in a little bit different direction if you'll allow me. I want to say our kids really don't understand what it is not to have. And for our listeners, I would encourage you to just sort of think about this for a second. And there's an important point that I want to say that I've learned, and I think God is trying to teach me. We as as Westerners living in America, I don't think we really understand the depth of depravity, sinfulness, need that's present in the people's lives that live there. But God's grace is sufficient. And we have to see that God and the gospel is ultimately enough. But here's the cool thing. Dr. Aiken, God has chosen so many of those people that are living in that depravity and living in that place to be gospel lights, to trust in him and learn to love him despite that poverty. So I think the message I would want to say to churches and to anyone is there's this level of sorrow that we have for people who are living in such difficult situations. But the gospel truth is this, the work that he's doing to equip the people there that are living in a situation we could never understand, but have the context, have the language, have the understanding of that culture. He is using those people to be effective in joyful ministries, not pulling them out of that poverty as we as Americans would say, but allowing him to use them in the midst of that difficulty. Mm-hmm. That's the thing I would want churches to pray for and rejoice and thank the Lord over that he's using people in the midst of poverty to perpetuate the gospel and to kingdom advance. So that's something I did want to say. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. I, uh, having served in East Africa and seeing people in slums and some other contexts of poverty, it's always amazed me just kind of the paradox and the irony of the Christian faith that you can have people in the slums who have found the greatest treasure in Jesus Christ, and they can have joy that we don't know with all of our possessions, with all the things that we have and own here in the West and other places. 
And they have found the greatest treasure, Jesus himself, and that it results in a life of joy and a life of service to him and to his kingdom. And so, yeah, that's a beautiful picture, whether it's Africa, Asia, wherever it is around the world, we know that we have brothers and sisters in Christ who have found that great treasure and who then are using that for kingdom purposes. So that's encouraging to hear you share that. Amen. I'll tell you a quick tidbit. The word for pearl, I think of the pearl of great price, right? The word for pearl and the word for freedom in our language are very, very close. That's cool. That's awesome. Okay. Last question before we shift gears, anything you'd like to say about the way that maybe your family is experiencing any particular blessings or seeing how the Lord is at work, maybe in your family's life, you can kind of put these two questions together. How are you seeing God kind of move and work in in the life of your family, but then also in the ministry and in the work as well, that might be encouraging to our listeners. One thing I would say specifically that my wife and I prayed for those years, we were just sort of struggling over the decision to go and the fear and anxiety that we felt like the enemy was just constantly throwing at us was what about our kids? What are we going to do when we take our kids to a third world country? Uh, My daughter was three and my son was six at the time. And you know, what life are they going to live? But one of the things that we really understood God speaking to us, and I believe it's true today, is he's called them to this work as well. He's called them as much as he's called us. And we've really seen that in the life of our kids. We've seen them grow to love the people as well. They've learned the language. They can communicate locally. They love their life there as well. It's home to them. So I think the Lord's grace and working in us as we've sought to be obedient to God is he's also called them to this. My two oldest kids came to faith over there. They were baptized there. It's their home. And so they feel like they have a ministry as well. And that's an incredible grace-filled story that I would tell that God's called my kids and he's used them to do great things in ministry, lead people to faith themselves even. So I think that's one thing he's been doing. And it just continues in my other two kids as they're growing up there as well. And then in the lives of some of the brothers and sisters that are serving there faithfully, I think The difficulties that Christians in our context face are a hundred times more difficult than even just the average person because of persecution, because of alienation in communities, even things like price gouging. When the local market people find out you're a Christian, and especially if you've come out of a Muslim background, they're going to gouge the prices for you. They might even not sell goods to you, things like that. Yet these brothers and sisters press on for the hope of the gospel, the hope of Christ. And I think just seeing God work to strengthen and encourage people who would say things like, you know what? I don't want a better life. God has called me for this time in this life, in this season to be in a difficult place so I can show his grace. Kind of that first Timothy one that God wants to use them and show his grace is so much more powerful in their lives. We're seeing the Lord do that as they suffer and with a Christ-like witness. We had a man that was on his deathbed and had become a believer and the local community dragged him to the mosque and they were asking him to recant his faith. And he was any day now going to be going on to be with the Lord. And in the midst of this mob asking him to recant his faith, he decided to preach the gospel from his deathbed. He's preaching the gospel in front of this mob who would rather kill him than hear. And yet through that witness of Christ, many came to faith that day. So just seeing people work diligently for the gospel in very difficult places, God raising up local leaders to see that no place left vision that Paul had of getting the gospel where it had not been gone before. I think those are the things God's doing. Having men and women turn away positions of wealth or turn away even positions within the church that might bring their family more worldly goods, but their call to go to maybe their families or the people in the background they came from has been really moving to us and seeing God work in that way. Amen. I want to switch to kind of some lightning round questions with some kind of quicker hitting responses. First question is, what do you think it takes to be a faithful and effective missionary in an extreme context? Uh, Maybe we'll use your example in a context of extreme poverty. 
Well, I think generally would say it's your calling that gets you there, but it's your abiding that keeps you there. We have to be in the word, in prayer, abiding with Christ each and every day, because the difficulty of seeing things like my wife would say, I can't pray for what breaks the Lord's heart because I wouldn't stop weeping. It's so difficult to see what's going on, but it's our abiding in Christ and his love and seeing that he is ultimately our prize is what keeps us there. So I would say the abiding has got to be there amidst all of the craziness, your time with the Lord, your relationship with Christ is ultimately the most important thing. And that's what's going to help us not just survive, but thrive there. You've been serving now in South Asia for over a decade. What would you say is the craziest, most shocking thing that you have seen or experienced? This can be a funny story. It could be a serious story or encounter, but what's the craziest and most shocking thing you've seen or experienced? Yeah, I think uh, many different stories. I'll tell you a funny one, I think, just to lighten the mood a little bit. So public bathrooms and stuff, it's just one of those things, like there's not a lot of places to use the bathroom. And I say this jokingly because sort of tongue in cheek, the men, particularly in our city, just use the bathroom anywhere on walls and in the gutters and just kind of anywhere. But in this particular situation, my son and I were heading over across the city and he had to go to the bathroom. He was about seven at the time. And I didn't know where to take him to the bathroom. He's like, dad, I got to really go. And of course, you know, I could have let him pee in a gutter on the side of the road, like everybody, but I was like, you know, I don't know, a little white American kid. I don't know what that's going to be like. So we went into this market and into the back and asked someone if there was a bathroom. And they said, yes. So I was like, great. So we went back into the back of this market and he was like running. He had to go so bad. So he goes and runs back in there to find the bathroom. So I, you know, start walking back to where he's at and I see a guy and he's got my son and he's holding him and his pants are at his ankles and he's carrying him down the hallway because my son had gone down this hallway at the end of the hallway was the mosque and right outside the mosque is an area where all the men will wash themselves their feet and their hands and their faces to go into the mosque but it kind of looks like almost like it could be this weird sort of urinal thing so he runs and sees that and he's peeing in this <laughs> this place where they wash themselves for the mosque and one of the guys the uncles as we would call them grabs him and picks him up and he's carrying him down the hall to the actual bathroom and we're laughing about it you know he wasn't mad he was laughing and so just kind of that cultural experience, like, man, he had no idea. And my son had no idea, but it was just kind of funny and certainly shows the hospitality of the people who are not being angry, but laughing about it. But, oh man, those just things we as inexperienced uh, people do sometimes in other cultures. That could have gone really, really bad. So I'm glad that there was a happy ending to that. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. All right. What is one thing that you wished you knew before you arrived in your context? Great question. And I'll just be really vulnerable to your listeners and maybe some folks would appreciate this. I think there was, and I'll be honest, a little bit of a Messiah complex. Like we're going to go there and we're going to change it. Like we're going to be God's gift to our place. God sent us there to do a work. And I think what I wish I would have thought is to have more of a humility and recognize it's still all about God changing my heart and working in me and revealing more about his character And so instead of me going there and being that change agent, God ultimately has used that place to change me and my heart to love him more and cherish the gospel more. So I wish I had known that this place is going to change me more than I'm going to change that place and just be willing to listen to the Lord and what he wants to teach me and to be open to what he wants to teach me through these faithful brothers and sisters that I get to do life with there. So Yeah, I would say just more of a humility and just more of seeing God's sovereignty and his hand at work in that place. For the people who are wanting to learn more about your context, maybe your region, is there a resource that you might point them to? Is there a book, a video, a movie, a web link? Is there something that you might say, hey, if you're wanting to learn more about 
my context, my work, my location, my area, I would recommend this resource to you. Great question. There's a couple I'll mention. So I think just in general, if you're interested in learning more about Islam, I would say a book by Nabil Qureshi called No God But One is probably my favorite on the subject of Islam. He does a really good job in that book of explaining not just Islam and the beliefs, but he actually digs into some of the Christian beliefs that are really good and not only contrast with Islam, but maybe have some similarities. So that's a really good one if you're interested in learning more. And then I'll just tell you one movie that you could watch, Slumdog Millionaire is a great picture of some of the depravity and just sort of lostness that we would see. If you watch that movie, I think that's a good portrayal of some of the really difficult situations we're put in. Clark, this is the last question I have for you. How would you encourage people who are working in difficult environments? What would you say to them? Romans 8 has always been where I go to. If I'm just having a tough day, if I just need the Lord to really speak to me. Romans 8 has always been my go-to through many difficulties in my life, even before I was living overseas. So I would just say the truth and goodness of God's word, pour into it, pour over it, let it pour into you. And in these difficult places, God ultimately is sovereign. We are privileged to be a part of his work because he loves us, but don't lose hope. Ultimately, every person from every nation, people, tribe, and language who needs to be around the throne one day, they will be there. And honestly, Dr. Aiken, I would just say we cannot do anything to stop that, to prevent those people from getting into the kingdom any more than we can do to jump ahead of God's plan for them being into the kingdom. So just hold on to the truth of God's word in Romans 8 and be encouraged by that. Clark, thank you so much for your time and for the conversation today. You're welcome. It's a privilege. Thank you so much, Dr. Aiken. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.